Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in this rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. This episode is one of a pair. The overarching topic that we've been talking about is sensory silence. In the first episode, we took a deep dive into quantitative descriptive analysis and a fresh approach that's being taken with that tool. If you missed it, please look for it wherever you get your podcasts because it was a really great conversation. Today, we'll be discussing the tools by which we can get rapid and reliable consumer feedback on our products to enable us to learn and quickly adapt to what consumers want. How can we make sure that we're making the right changes to our products to maximize consumer acceptance? I'm really excited today to be able to chat again with Becky Blaybloom, and this time also with her colleague, Anna Leachman. As we heard last time, Becky earned her BSc at the University of California in Davis and her master's at Washington University in St. Louis. And after many years in the sensory science field, she is still teaching sensory and consumer science at UC Davis and is also still the president and chief sensory intelligence officer at Dragonfly SEI. Now, Anna also earned a BSc at University of California in Davis and went on to obtain her master's from UC Davis as well. Anna has a wide breadth of experience with companies in all sizes, both consulting and leading sensory programs. She is currently the Director of Research Essentials at Dragonfly SCI. Becky and Anna, welcome to Side Dish. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. So, Anna, I think we'll start with you this time. And uh, I wonder if you could tell us what motivates you about the work you're doing today. And I was hoping that you also might be able to tell us a little bit about that research essentials thing that's part of your job title. Sounds intriguing. What's that all about? Yeah, it definitely is intriguing. Yeah, I'm really excited actually to be working with Dragonfly Sci. Um, I've been working with them for about a year and a half now um, and really wanted to bring in my experience with those smaller companies. And one of the things that I learned while working for smaller companies is that often people look at sensory science or consumer research as something that's only really for the big guys. Um, And it doesn't have to be that way. And one of the things that we're doing with Research Essentials is to bring those things that those big guys are doing and distilling it down to the essentials so that it's accessible to anyone of any size. So it can be for small companies, big companies, and it, you know, early, fast responses for prototyping and product development. So it's a lot of fun and interesting new work. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Becky, given that we've already heard a little bit about your background, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about this time about the fun things that you find about the sensory evaluation of of foods field? Well, I think I'm really excited about the Research Essentials line because we do have small companies and to get introduced to the tools that can really help them make decisions. Right. And, um, you know, taking it down to it's a teaching tool as well as um, as really an applied tool that companies can use. And it's just a different area that, uh, like Anna said, we're trying to make it very accessible and achievable by small groups so they can make decisions like the large companies. And, 
you know, we the scorecards that we've seen companies use for consumers can be quite lengthy. I mean, right. when they're evaluating multiple products and they ask 30 some odd questions, oh, yes. a consumer could an- answer 300 questions in a one hour session, which is just mind boggling. And we talk about the SAT only has 154 questions. So <laughs> it's a little bit fatiguing, right? So we think, what are the essentials that the, over the years, what what attributes or what um, scales have we, have we always put in the executive summary versus what goes in the appendix. Right. And we say, what are the essential questions? And, and uh, we'll talk about, you know, kind of what this tool is all about. But I think that really excites me to um, provide these tools in a very accessible way, an affordable way. And going back to low tech, we're talking paper pencil activity to instill this process. And it's a very engaging tool for the consumer as well. So, Becky, how about we stay with you for a little bit, and I'm perhaps I can ask you to tell us a bit of a give us a bit of an overview of consumer research. Why should we be using it, and what are some of the advantages of doing that research? And what lessons have you seen people learn the hard way when they skip this critical step? Well, that's that's a great question, and and I think uh, we've seen companies. Um, dive right into, they go out into the marketplace, they put a product out there thinking, if it's not perfect, we'll fix it later. And that first initial reaction by the consumer can make or break your brand. Oh, yeah. And word gets out very quickly. And you should know, you should gather some data from your consumers. And if you have a benchmark or my, we talk about share of stomach, what are they going to use your product for or replace what they're currently doing? They can only have so many calories in a day. So what are you asking them to trade off to take your product on? Mm. And uh, when we first started with the research essentials, we had a, a client that had just spent at least $60,000 on a consumer test and they failed miserably. Oh, really? Oh, well, yeah. and it's so, you know, it's very disheartening for the product developers because, you know, they spend a lot of time trying to get the formulas right. They spend money, find out that they have to go back to the drawing board when in fact, if you did a smaller pilot test early on to find out should that product proceed, where are you relative to competition on a small scale before you go and spend the, the dollars that it takes to validate those things. Um, so that was our real idea to get an early indication as a pilot study um, right. and make it affordable and achievable You know, for the R&D team. We want them to be successful and you know, understand how their products do compare before you get into a larger validation. It, it does raise the question in my mind about diagnosing a product issue after you've already launched it. And let's say, for mm-hmm. instance, we've you're starting to see some sales softening and, and maybe even some consumer complaints. What sort of tools can, can be used to diagnose what the issues might be and, and how, how do we go about using those? Well, we've got two essential tools in, in the sensory world, really. One of them is a, an analytical tool. We talked about the culinary QDA or descriptive analysis programs and understanding the product perception from what it looks like, smells like, and feels like. And that's a good tool for the R&D team to kind of fingerprint where you are today, where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Consumers don't go into that much detail. They shouldn't, you know, you can't ask them so many questions because they don't think like that. They can recognize a good product when they see it. <laughs> And communicate that, but so we we know what they like, and then we can also know why they like what they do. So, um, you know, tying those two pieces together, really, there are two different approaches, and you ask two different groups of people to give you those uh, the evaluations. 
but uh, you know, just understanding what they what they like and why they like what they do allows you to you can make changes in the product, but how much do you want to change before consumer liking is impacted, purchase right. interest is impacted? So, so Anna, perhaps if I could bring you in here, really the focus of our conversation today is about measuring consumer acceptance. And, and I know that sounds simple, but it's often neglected or not done particularly well. What is consumer acceptance? Why is it important and how does it differ from the other, say, business tools that are used to gauge if products are ready to launch? Yeah, so, I mean, in its simplest form, consumer acceptance really is just, does a consumer like it? Will they buy it? Do Does it meet their expectations and what they want from that product? So like Becky was saying, share of stomach, like, is this something that they want to spend their money on, that they want to spend their calories on? And, you know, often companies think, oh, well, I know what my consumer wants mm. or that golden tongue knows, um, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, that's something that we always deal with in the sensory world. And, yes. and the thing is, is that sometimes they do, they get it right, but sometimes they don't. And the only way to validate that is by measuring consumer acceptance. So it's so important because like Becky was saying, someone could launch a product without getting it right. And that's going to make the product fail out in the marketplace. Consumer is not going to accept that product. And some of the other tools that, you know, that companies use are is those golden tongues, but also, you know, sometimes people think, oh, if I just, you know, have the right words in my marketing ploy, or if I mm. use those trendy ingredients, mm. you know, then someone's going to buy it. And that's might be true. They might buy it once, but will they buy it again? Right. And that's really what consumer acceptance is all about. Mm. It's that repeat purchase cycle that we really need to establish in order to make our brand successful. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Having spent many years doing product development, um, some of the common features of the, most of the products that I've certainly worked on are tight timelines and tight budgets. Mm -hmm. And that really can significantly constrain what you're able to do. And so how can we best adapt and learn in, in that mode? Well, I, I, you know, we're trying to be agile. And when we started Dragonfly Side, that was the, the key to bring these powerful tools to the smaller companies and even to the larger companies. You know, what can you do on a small scale that's affordable and inexpensive to get high quality data? And that's why we created uh, Dragonflight. You know, it's, it's really came out of our, our desire to help the smaller company, but also put it in context. Context is a big area in sensory science now. And you know, what happens in a, in a sterile booth versus what happens in a, in a brewery or in a, in a wine market or in a cafe or, uh, you know, in some kind of uh, restaurants or culinary world. What And we see a lot of um, products, the ideas, the creative ideas do come a lot of times from chefs that are out there working, but how do they make a product that uh, is good on a small scale and scale it up to a commercialized version? Right. So, so if I'm working on a really, really small scale, like a startup, where there's you know yeah. uh, me and the 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 original founder and maybe somebody that that's got some money, um, if I'm working in that sort of startup small scale business, do these same rules or guidelines apply, or are there are some other shortcuts that that potentially could be taken? Yeah. 
Well, one thing that I think that, you know, you say the word shortcuts, but that's not really something that we can do in a scientific world. Um, It won't be scientific. It won't be done in a way that will lead to successful results that will be predict, you know, predictive of the real world. Mm. So in order to still follow those scientific protocols, we don't, we're not going to take shortcuts, but we can simplify it down to those essentials. Right. Um, We can say, okay, as long as you follow these critical steps in making sure that you are still developing scientific research and you follow those um, protocols, then you can still get really valuable data in a very simple and fast way. Um, And so a very small scale business can definitely do this. I mean, one of the things that we love about Research Essentials is that it's also a teaching tool. Right. It's something that if you don't have that sensory knowledge, you it's like people joke that it looks kind of like a little candy land uh, board game that we've got <laughs> going and you can just kind of follow along on this little candy land uh, board game and, and you'll get there to the end and you'll, you know, have a successful product. hopefully. <laughs> well, but the, as a teaching tool, we do try to talk about, you know, what's your hypothesis? Why are you doing this research and what are you comparing to? I need to be as good as, if not better than this product. I mean, right. most companies do have some kind of a, you know, a benchmark or something that, you know, you have to demonstrate that. And we have a lot of investment teams. These small entrepreneurial startups are trying to get funding. And as an investors want to see how does your product on an unbranded basis, does the product itself deliver relative to a competitive product? Right. And uh, and those studies can be expensive. But if you did a dragonfly, say, you know, who's your target? If you, if you can't convince this group of consumers that do they really like your product, then you should you know, what's your real opportunity target? And uh, do they like it relative to a competitive? Do you have some data to support that? That can be used to help convince the leadership team to invest more in the business or you need to go back to the drawing board. Yes. Yeah. So there's two things that you, you've said now that I'm, I'm, you're, I'm really uh, inquisitive about. One, one is you've mentioned a couple of times Dragonflight. So let's spend a few minutes just dissecting Dragonflight and tell us a little bit more about what that actually is. Dragonflight came out of an idea of, uh, you know, we were working in casual bar research and uh, we really did a joint project with another company over in Munich on Rattlers, on beers. Right. And the idea was to, uh, rather than test in these isolated booths, can we test in more of a a bar atmosphere and, and get the consumer more comfortable and relaxed and maybe have some friends with them. And, you know, like you're doing something in a, in a location in an on-premise site. So we really liked that idea and we learned a lot by doing that. Um, But one of them was that, you know, we spent a lot of time doing sequential menadic testing. So we give one product at a time, take it away, give them a rest interval, give them another product at a time, take it away. That involves a lot of staff and a lot of time and and, uh, collection. And we don't want to, we don't want to, go away from the credibility of the data. But a Dragonflight is really a, a placemat and we give them three products and we ask a, a small flight of products that you would get, but we ask three really important questions on that Dragonflight placemat. And it's a scorecard, but we ask overall liking, how much do you like that product? Mm-hmm. Would Are you interested in purchasing that? And does it meet your expectations? And the expectations is what did you tell the consumer in the first place? <laughs> 
right? What were they expecting? And how, you know, we just finished a, a whiskey tasting, for example, as a demonstration down at the uh, Southern California Institute of Food Technologists. And you didn't invite me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun because we had a we had a three whiskeys, right? And so one whiskey's from the 1600s, or the recipes you know, they promote on the bottle from the 1600s. One was from the 1700s, and one was from 2015. So if you're developing this new product that's going to go against these established brands on a blind basis, do you really have something here that's new and different that's going to appeal to consumers that are currently consuming the the existing brands? Now you're introducing this new brand. Uh, does it appeal on an unbranded basis to your target population? So it's a very simple right. way to do that. We follow all the scientific processes of, you know, setting up your hypothesis, selecting your products, coding the samples like you would a research experiment, uh, rotating, balancing the serving order, and uh, providing them with the information that you want them to know ahead of time in the evaluations. Right. Yeah, and I think one of the things too to mention about Dragonflight is it's not just the evaluation, but it's also the teaching and the guide towards completing that evaluation or completing that research. Proto, you know, by following all of those scientific um, protocols. So, like Becky was saying, it teaches you how to set up that hypothesis, making sure that your test products are going to give you that answer that you need. Are you following, you know, all of the different rules to make sure that you know that you're not giving one particular product an advantage over another? Are you, you know, serving everything at the same temperature? You know, all of those little things that go into making sure that at the end, you know that your results are valid. Right. So so does that lead us into the other area I was going to explore, which is you referred to the critical steps and you know, the, the coding of the products, the same temperature, an, an environment that's um, not uh, adverse to what it is being tasted. Are they the critical steps you're talking about or when you were referring to critical steps, something else again? Those are the critical steps. And we really, we have a handbook because, you know, like IFT's participated in a lot of science fairs. How yeah. do we get, how do we get sensory at a at the uh, high school or college level early on so people understand there's, you know, it scratches the service for what sensory does for companies. And it, it just, we're, we're thrilled with the Dragonflight because it provides um, that thing. You have to take your data, decode the data, plot the data, make some conclusions and some recommendations based on what you've found. But it's really setting up a whole research experiment. And there's a handbook that we uh, train people on how to do that. Right. So, so you've emphasized speed and low cost quite a bit. And while I'm sure we can all agree that's really, really important, the other thing you've talked about is the robustness of the data we produce. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about the scientific rigor and how can we make sure the results are really, really sound? I mean, we've talked about the critical steps, but I think I'm more now interested in the interpretation of the results. You, you can help, help me a little bit with that? Yeah, I think one thing to to mention is that this is a pilot right. um, that we're we're doing here. So the results are going to be scientifically sound because you're going to be following all of these protocols and all these critical steps. And that data is, you know, based off of you know experimental psychology. An N of thirty can you can make some conclusions off of. We're actually getting an N of fifty um, if they follow all of the the steps, but 
So you're going to be able to make some sort of conclusions. However, this is not something that a large company would then say, great, yay, we win. We can go ahead and launch our product. (laughs) (laughs) It still requires those uh, validation studies as well. And, And it really, but it does give you that initial read, like Becky was saying, that one company that was, it was just so unfortunate that they spent so much money on a product that really failed in a validation study. And if they had done a pilot study first, it would have told them, don't do this. And it would have been so much less costly and so much faster. Um, and But they would have that answer to that question much faster. So what does a validation study look like? I'll let Becky take this one. (laughs) You know, before we move on from, you know, how do you make sure that the data is robust? And, you know, I mentioned that we did this whiskey tasting down in L.A. And, uh, you know, and people joined because it was fun to join. But, you know, we also asked them, how often do you drink whiskey? What kinds of brands? We can get a little bit of usage and attitude information. So when we look at the data, if I never buy whiskey, then I'm not going to, you know, how how important is that data to look at? versus people that are really your target consumer. And if they qualify by the questions that you've set out, like who, who are you trying to sell to and, and what are their usage and attitudes in this category, you can develop a short little questionnaire to go along with the dragon flight so you know who you're talking to and you use that data. Um, you can uh, make sure you have enough of the right target consumer to make those decisions. Right. Okay. So is that how the validation study works? You just make sure that you really got the target consumer really well represented within the uh, panelists. Right. But, but like Anna said, it's still a pilot and the validation would be, you know, this is 50 people in one location, right? A very small right. scale guidance panel for the R&D team, we think. Um, and as you scale up, validation could be go to multiple markets, do, you know, a few hundred consumers in different oh, locations. Right. So you're, now you're, you know, now you're spending real dollars to go get that information. Are you ready to invest in that kind of validation, um, or, or do you need to go back to the drawing board and rework your products before you do that? Right. We we do often see a lot of people still focusing on the utilization of their internal employees as the panelists or friends and family as the panelists mm-hmm. uh, to kind of speed the process up and reduce their cost. Is that uh, is something that could be done with the Dragonflight, or would you? How would you recommend people move forward with with if they wanted to do that? If you're getting the opinions of your employees, there it's going to be biased. The employees are going to know your product much better than um, the other products. They're going to say, "Oh, well, I know that this is ours, so I'm going to say it's great," um, and that bias can really skew the results. And in order to make sure that the results are sound, you need to make sure that you're using those target consumers that are Mm. unbiased. Um, So we wouldn't recommend that. However, I will say that getting something on your, (laughs) getting some sort of feedback is better than no feedback. But (laughs) what the great thing is about Dragonflight and about Research Essentials is that it provides you that framework and that guide so that you can go ahead and do this with people that are not your company's employees. 
Well, engage consumers where they are was part of right. our mission too, to, to go out. And, and a lot of times, in, you know, if you go to facilities and not, you know, we work with a lot of facilities and you know, you've got a core group of people that like to come because they get paid to do it and participate. And how yeah. do you get people that don't normally participate, right? How do you, you have wine clubs and clubs that, you know, like an on-premise people, you know, you want to engage those consumers and, uh, you know, start building a, a network and, you know, you're helping the, R&D team make your products better. So mm. that's a really neat thing for consumer engagement too. Mm. Yes, I mean, having worked with a business that seemed to um, have the same panelists come in from the outside all the time as their representative consumers in inverted commas, uh, mm. I can see where you're going with that because that's uh, it was always something that, that, that bothered me that we were using the same people to give us uh, d- hopefully different answers and lo and behold, we didn't get different answers. So... Dragonflight is a, a potentially a way for us to get around that. Right. To, to bring in people that don't normally participate. We're not asking them a battery of questions. You know, some of those, do you want to sit in a booth and answer 300 questions in an hour? <laughs> or yeah. do you want to just, you know, give, give some high level, do you like it? Is this something that you think you would purchase? And based on what we told you, does it meet your expectations? And we, also, and we can tie that back to their usage, you know, ask some questions about their usage behavior and then uh, plot out some very simple plots that are always, we call them the trifecta questions, um, because that on working with companies over the years, those three questions always made it into the high level reports. Okay, so the trifecta questions, and I think you've coined a term trifecta scale. So let's uh, dig a little into that and tell me what that's all about. Well, first one is overall liking. Right. Make sure that the product is well liked. And, and uh, you know, that particular scale, the nine point Adonis scale is used by most of the major companies that we work with. It's just a very powerful scale right. um, to measure perception. If, if they like it better, we know that consumption. Uh, well, the whole history behind developing that scale was for the military. And as you know, as rations products that the military folks were not eating as they got better, they can, can soldiers like them better. Consumption went up, right. so that was a, that was a real key piece for using that scale to say, well, if if they like it better, maybe that you know we can sell more of them. So that's important. Um, purchase interest, you know, it's just that's another kind of a metric. And then expectations, I think, is a real key one. Based on what you told them, is it better or worse than what they were expecting? And do you have? Um, benchmarks that if you get past these certain benchmarks, then this product has a much higher chance of success than than not? We do. We definitely have benchmarks over multiple categories and multiple years, but we encourage people to um, to develop, start developing their own benchmarks, do some of these studies and figure out what, what are these products scoring? We work on so many different categories and so many different levels. Is it a is it a prototype that the chef made, or is it something from the pilot plan and the production facility, or uh, you know? But but start developing your own product knowledge is the key. We have benchmarks. We can help people with understanding that data. But it really comes back to what are you trying to produce and what's your competitive set? Right. Uh, how do they score? Yeah, and a user could use Dragonflight um, where there's three different products, and they could use Dragonflight to include um, a benchmark product, like include their highest competitor, and then 
they could also include their product prototype or their product and say, okay, how does it compare to that benchmark? How does it compare to that competitor? Are we meeting those same metrics as that as they are? And if yes, then that can give you some information. And if no, that gives you other information. Right. So in different categories in in the food industry, would they have different benchmarks or is the benchmark pretty much the same across all categories? It varies by category and it really it really should. And we've seen benchmarks change over time too. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, well, in wine, for example, we started doing wine work back in the 80s, right? And, and people didn't really like the wines. They tended to be veggie and uh, just to have some interesting off notes, you know, and they would, you know, if they got a 6.5 on a nine-point hedonic scale, that was a pretty high score back in the day. Well, now we're doing wines that score like ice cream score. I mean, they just like, (laughs) people learn. I mean, the product developers learn, you know, everybody learns about how do you uh, change things. And it's not just increasing sweetness or, you know, other things that are simple, but really providing a a product that uh, delivers that experience and, um, and different categories, if you're doing, you know, commodity products versus premium products, you do have different benchmarks, and you should. Wow, I mean, you've you've stimulated lots of minds with ice with wine flavored ice creams with, with that that comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure someone's doing it out there. Yeah. I've not seen it before, but that was a so you should patent that really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> So, so maybe this is a bit more of a legal question, but uh, what would be the standard that we would need to meet in order to say that we have the best pro- tasting product in the market? Well, that would require something much bigger than research essentials. That would require a, a really significant validation study um, if you were going to make a claim like that. Um there are regulations uh, like on ASTM for ad claims um, that you can follow to find out how to best uh, do a study like that. Well, when we, when we talk about legal claims too, you know, it's really what do the networks, they, they've changed over the years, right? Because now we, you have information on the internet, uh, Anything that you say about your product, do you have data to back it up? And what would a reasonable consumer believe based on the statements that you're making? So most companies do like to have some supporting data. And we say, what, how much evidence do you need to support your claim? And different claims require different amounts of evidence. And we've used the culinary QDA to substantiate claims. And if you're doing consumer work, then you need to, their ASTM, that E1958 document that is published, it's Sensory claim substantiation is a document that the National Advertising Division uses, attorneys use, but it's not the be-all, end-all. It's a, it's a good guide. And we have another guide, practical guide to comparative advertising. If you're doing things like that, there's another book out there that's got a lot of insights into how you do that. But it does require a sensory team to help you design an experiment to validate the claim that you're making. Right. So, so don't attempt to uh, make those sorts of claims unless you've uh, done your homework. Well, you should do your homework. You, you know, those, those types of projects require, you know, I'd, I'd bring the attorneys in. I would bring your, you know, the R&D teams, the marketing team and the sensory scientists together. And how do you, because there's so many details to those types of um, research studies that you want to just be buttoned up. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. We've, we've now, although we're talking about sensory evaluation of foods, we've suddenly hit the concept of 
the value of a cross-functional team in in moving the business forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is something that we emphasise constantly in the broader sense of of product development is that cross-functional team and how powerful it is. And and now it's come up again in this setting. Do you, do you see the value in the the cross-functional team? at the product inception stage all the way through to the uh, di- diagnosis of the of the results? I absolutely do. I think the earlier you can engage a team approach to these things, everybody has a different role to play, but understanding the bigger picture and where your role is in that picture, I think is very important. And, you know, sensory used to be a service function. People would drop off samples on your tables, like I want a discrimination test or Something and, and tell me whether this passes or not. <laughs> and you know, we've got some brilliant scientists working in this field. I think IFT, the you know, the sensory d- division, has a lot of really amazing folks that are working in this area. And why wouldn't you engage them early in those conversations? And maybe they don't have anything to contribute, they're listening, but it's what the point they need to interject, they will do that. Yeah, especially for the, the sensory team, like Becky was saying, like if someone's just dropping off a sample, it makes it a lot harder to make sure that your research is done in the right way to get that right answer. And so if there's a larger conversation, then that sensory team can really understand, oh, this is how it all works within my company, or this is how, this is what our goal is. How can we make sure that we develop the right research to get the answers that we need for that business objective? Mm. We used to have a situation too. I just want to add on one more thing there that, you know, I've been in the field long enough to, to uh, be back at the stage where there was a lot of not animosity, but sort of a little uh, turf wars between the consumer insights of the market and researchers and the sensory team. Like, are we doing the same function? Yeah. And I think now I think the roles are better defined and we complement each other, right? We really complement each other. So as we move products forward to go to those larger validation studies or, you know, go to a larger consumer set and it ties in with the packaging, the promotion and everything else you're doing that, you know, you, they have a higher chance of success if they involve the sensory department early, what products get passed up to go on to that next level. So, so what else would you like our listeners to know about the sensory evaluation of foods that we haven't already discussed today? I think that for me, especially just in, you know, fighting the good fight for the, for the value of sensory is just that data is so valuable. You can get so much and you can make so many, you know, decisions that can help uh, increase the success of your products if you just learn something, learn something about your products, either do some descriptive data um, or do some, get, gather a little, at least a little bit of information from your consumers, you know, just starting from somewhere, you can understand so much faster how valuable sensory um, and consumer evaluation can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the tools that are out there today are really trying to be very approachable. You know, they're great software suites that really require a lot of education versus some other tools that are very approachable and handheld. And and you can engage other people to start looking at products, not just um, do they like it or not, but how do you, how do you describe it and how does it, uh, how do those changes impact consumers? People notice, you know. Yes. <laughs> and they have a lot of choices out there. And, you know, with a lot of opinions. Yeah. 
It certainly are a lot of choices. So as we finish up here today, what advice would you give to those people who want answers from you? What do you need from them first? What's your question? (laughs) (laughs) But I I know that sounds so simple, but sometimes it's so hard to really define that question, really understanding what is What's the goal? What's that business objective? What are you solving for? Yeah. Yeah. Understand that and you can you're much more likely to make, develop research that will get you the answers that you need. Right. And Becky, would you would you add to that or build on that in some ways? Well, I just I just think, you know, that that really is what problem are you trying to solve in and, and uh, you know, we you can do the most fancy research in the world, but have just start small, start small and start gathering data, start getting that understanding, build your database of your product category and your competitive sets. And uh, it doesn't have to break the bank. You can do things in a small scale. And as you grow the whole, whole idea is you make products that consumers like, they'll find you, they'll, you'll grow your business. And then you have a problem of getting a co-packer, another line. And as you scale up, Sensory can be a, a critical tool in scaling up and, and keeping that consumer satisfied. And keeping the product consistent as we uh, scale to a, a bigger line or a, or a different manufacturer. Yep, or go around the world. You know, I mean, Ooh. we've done a lot of global things as well, but we we like to start small and get these, uh, you know, help the consumer uh, be better satisfied. And, and repeat purchase is definitely a byproduct of uh, people really enjoying the product. So, and that's what we've been talking about today. Right. Mm. Becky and Anna, look, I really want to thank you for your time and sharing all your knowledge and in, with us and inspiring stories about how we might, might make this whole process of sensory evaluation of foods uh, much more uh, understandable and, and uh, easy to approach. So. Uh, I really appreciate all your time. And and once again, I've, I've learned a lot. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was supported by the IFT Sensory and Consumer Sciences Division, which is a special interest group within IFT. Now, IFT has many different special interest groups, and I'd encourage you to go to the IFT website and look under the Community tab. And under there, you'll see all the different divisions that are available to members so that they can network and share best practices with lots of other members who might also have an interest in that special area. And thank you also to our listeners today. If you're enjoying The Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcasts or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more information on the sensor evaluation of foods or lots of other subjects, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject you're interested in into the search box to gain access to a ton of resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone. Bye.